Welcome back to the David Watson podcast. Today I spoke with Scott M. Hoffman, the author of Inside. We all like to think we could be somebody different. When you talk about the mob, the mafia, the Chicago outfit, the New York families, depending on who you are, depends on where your mind travels with that information. But they are real people. And as the book implies, some people have seen inside of what happens with the Chicago outfit. And Scott is going to tell you a story. Hello, welcome to the David Watson podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. And we're going to get into something that is probably one of the most uh, popular topics in the world with myth, legend, and some fiction and reality and probably largely dosed up by Hollywood. So could you just explain to everybody who you are and the book that you wrote? Well, good, good nice to see you, David, and also your audience. Uh, my name is Scott M. Hoffman, and I'm living in Chicago. My father was high-ranking in the Chicago crime family, The Outfit. He was a manager for Paul Rica. He was a consigliere for Sam Giancana. He reported to Tony Accardo, who would be a be considered the CEO, and in 1973, he reported to uh, Joe Yayupa as a consigliere. My father had the plans for the seven hotels and seven casinos in Las Vegas. And when I was eight years old, I was starting to go with my father to Las Vegas at least five times a year, because my father's approach was me was not grooming me. That was, you know, hosts will ask me, well, was he grooming you? No. What he was doing was saying to me, I want you to see everything so you will know with your eyes open if this is what you really want to do. But you've got to see everything to know what you want to do. So normally there's a mob law, let's say, mob rule, that cops and kids are off limits, okay? So, you know, and not women. It has nothing to do with women, just cops and kids. So normally you would say, gee, he's eight years old. What was he doing all this? Well, the outfit at their height was bringing in all their illegal activities, $200 million a year. And Las Vegas was bringing in $100 million a year. So since the first conversation of the day is about money, the last conversation of the day is about money, no, they didn't care about me, okay? They didn't care about me at all. So yeah, I could see whatever I want, and I saw a lot. I saw every bit of mob life, okay? And the outfit is still continuing today. They have four street crews. In fact, in 2022, uh, they signed a, a, let's say, an agreement, not on paper, but a partnership between the Philadelphia mob, them, and the Kansas City mob. And they knew quite a bit of what was going to be going on in the Super Bowl, but I can't talk about that. Okay? Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, obviously, I have a podcast, and when I talk to friends, I'll be honest, most of my friends don't show a huge amount of interest in what I'm doing from the day-to-day or week-to-week of a podcast. And But I, I still mention a guest that I might have on and what I'm doing. But when I mentioned you and your book and the story, everybody was interested. Every, everybody it's a subject was like, matter, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's there, a there subject is... matter that everyone wants to know. Like I always say, I'm the messenger, but it's a subject. I have not had a host yet tell me. Scott, this was a waste waste of time. I don't know why I did this with you. Um, I'm sorry to take up your time, but really it was garbage. 
know, no one has said that. Everyone wants me to come back and spend more time with them. But it's, I mean, you, you've covered it in some of the questions that I've read, that, that people have a funny fascination. It's almost, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean. When I said to one of my friends, Emma, that I was talking to you, and we normally, her and I normally go to the cinema together and watch films. She was just like, we should do a Mafia day and watch Mafia films for the day instead of going to the cinema. So we ended up watching uh, Casino, then Goodfellas, and then The Irishman, all ba based off the fact that I would be talking to you. And she, she was just like, we, we should have a Mafia day. This, this would be great. And that, it's, it's that. I, I don't get that about any other subject. No, you won't, because uh, as I tell people and I tell the hosts uh, on other podcasts and radio shows, no one lives this type of a life unless you're in the life. You have to know it from the inside. People have their normal lives. Uh, I did not have a child's life, okay? I did not have birthday parties. I didn't learn how to ride a bike. My father never took me to a professional baseball game like the Chicago Cubs. And I was a Cubs fan. We never tossed a football around. Everything was mob-related. You're going to see everything. You're going to learn. Everything was mob-related. So when I am in a restaurant eating and I see a family, say, with young children, I look at them and I say, I wonder what it was like to have a childhood. Because I didn't, never had a life of innocence. My life of innocence started and ended and began in Las Vegas when I was eight years old. But I had seen mob activity before that. Okay, I had seen it before, and that was in a church. What? Yeah, because there's a big section in the book about the church, and and how they get the, the priest on side. The it, it's you you. There was something I've written it down. I'm trying to find how I because it was something you described. Um, but. It's once they get hold of something, because it's, it's interesting, they do the same with the um, the funeral directors, with the funeral house. Oh, yeah. And and I was wondering, what is the difference? Because there's this so-called rule, and I want to get into the rules at some point, because there's this some so-called rule that you don't touch civilians, you leave civilians alone, because they're not part of the life. But actually, they've always kind of get civilians into the life. You know, like the funeral director, the priest. I mean, the, it turns out on every occasion, these people cannot say no. They're not allowed to. Well, but basically the reason is because in the Catholic faith, you are allowed absolution if the priest will give it to you. You can be absolved of all crimes. I'll never forget I was in a neighborhood hospital. And today in Chicago, like everywhere else, the hospital system has all these conglomerates that run the hospital. And it was a Saturday, and this guy was getting near the end of his life. The priest was going to come and, and give him last rites. But he was also, and his wife was there, and his daughter was there, and I'm there in the hospital because I had known him a long time. And he says to the priest, uh, I'd like absolution on a guy. And the priest says, okay, well, what, what happened? And he said, I murdered this son of a bitch, and if I could dig him up again, I'd murder him again. So I want absolution. So the priest looks at me and says, uh, let's like go outside, gives me the eye, let's go outside and talk. And he said to me, what do I do now with, with Johnny? And I said, well, tell Johnny this, that you don't accept coupons. It's only one for one. You can only give him absolution on one time. 
you can't give him absolution on a second time. And he goes back in, he tells Johnny, Johnny says, are you serious? You mean you can't give me another absolution if I killed a guy twice? And the priest said, no, no, I, I really, it's only one time. And Johnny looked at me, he says, ah, Scott, uh, maybe I should have become Jewish. I made a mistake. I should have left the Catholic faith. So, yeah, I mean, that was what it was all about. Like I say, the, the very first thing I saw that was, this was before Las Vegas. This was at least two months before when people say, oh, Las Vegas, was that how you started? No, it really wasn't. Two months before, there were two wise guys, uh, one named Tony and his brother Mikey, and they invited my father. And they said, bring Scott along. And there was a dinner and raffle at a Catholic church on Taylor Street, which is on the west side of Chicago, a heavy Italian neighborhood. A lot of wise guys lived in the neighborhood. So we get there Saturday, and uh, Tony and Mikey are outside. And we say hello, and the priest comes out. And uh, Tony says to the priest, can you please, uh, Father, bless my ticket for tonight? because I need some good luck and I need God's help. So Tony takes out the ticket and the priest says, sure. And he looks at the ticket and okay, puts the blessing on it. And then we go inside and we have uh, dinner, and, uh, you know, the dinner and everything. And after dinner, the priest comes out with this container and uh, like a handle with the assistant priest. And that was all um, uh, ping pong balls with numbers because they would start out $5 winner if your number was drawn at $10. And they would build up to $50, which was a lot of money in those days. Because we're talking 1956, and that was, you know, a lot of money. So they get to the final prize, okay, where they're going to award the $50. And the priest says to the assistant priest and to the audience, um, I'm going to take just a little bit of break because my hand's a little bit tired. And I know God is watching me and wants me to, to do the right thing. And I know God will do something to me and I don't want to leave this parish. And everyone starts laughing. So the priest takes the container and they go away. They come back maybe five minutes later. He said, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to uh, have the final drawing. And he, the assistant priest cranks up the handle and the balls start flying around. And the priest puts his hand up and he looks to God uh, upstairs like he's talking to God. Say, God, yes, I know you've got your eyes on me and you see when someone does good and someone does bad and I will always do good for you. So then he pulls out the number. Now, Mikey and Tony's number was six. I just want you to remember the number six, okay? The priest puts his hand in and he pulls out a ping pong ball, number six, okay? And this is what my, so it's over at that point and they're, everyone's saying, oh, congratulations. And, um, I'm sitting with my father, and I told him I have to go to the bathroom. I'm going in the back, and I see Tony and Mikey, who have $20 apiece. They don't see me, and they take the $10, and they give it to the priest, and they say, they said, thanks, priest. Thanks, you know, whatever his name was, Frankie or Johnny, whatever his name was, the priest, thanks. So now I am go to the bathroom. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm eight years old. What's going on here? My, I come back. My father says, I'll tell you in the car. So we say our goodbyes uh, maybe a half hour later. We thank him for the dinner. It was nice to see you win and all that. Get in the car. My father said that was the cold ball trick. And he explained to me what it was, was when the priest looked at the card to put his blessing, he saw the number. So what he did was he went back and he took out number six and put it in the freezer and let it sit there during all the other drawings, took the uh, container with the handle, and then he puts it in, mixes it with all the other balls. So now when the assistant priest 
cranks up the container and the balls are jumping around and then then it stops and he puts his hand in he's feeling for the cold ball okay once he felt the cold ball then he pulled it out number six okay so that's how that was the cold ball trick and i had seen that and after that i would see that later on where guys could win five hundred dollars a thousand so a guy went ten thousand but they were all mob guys all wise guys so the priest was in involved and drawing the cold ball. And every time I'd see a raffle now, you know, even in later years, I'd always say to myself, are they using the cold ball trick? And the people didn't know. No, because, the, the, I mean, there's lots of little tricks, but would there, would there ever have been a time when a priest would have said no? Yes, there was one when, yeah, there was one time when, uh, and I was with her, I was with Annie, Annie Spilatra, Michael Spilatra's, wife and this was after they found the boys you know buried in the indiana cornfield because they had been killed before they didn't die in the cornfield they had died before they found the bodies two years later and uh, i went with annie to the church and she wanted a catholic funeral at the church and every sunday when the kids were little they taken them to the church you know and they donated donated money to the church and normally you figure okay it would have been a done deal but the priest was, I would say, early 40s, mid 40s, you know, a young guy. I'm not going to, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it because of what they did during their life. Mm. Okay. And uh, Annie's arguing with him. He says, look, we come every Sunday. We, we bring the kids. We donate money. No, he wouldn't do it. He, he wouldn't do it. And that was very rare that something like that happened. I guess we had a priest who had morals. You know? Yeah. Because a lot of them didn't. A lot of them didn't. Like I say. Uh, my father used to use churches, and he used Catholic cemeteries and Jewish synagogues. And the priests, you know, he'd have meet with guys there. He'd talk with guys because he never trusted a restaurant. He was always afraid there was a bug under the table. So when we would be through with the uh, priest and the, using the church, my father would always give him, here's, Father, here's a $5 donation. And if the priest was a drinker, then he would have Jack Daniels, give him a bottle of Jack Daniels, Cuddy Sark. Johnny Walker Red, and we had five churches downstairs in the basement. And no one could go downstairs other than the priest that had freezers, the long freezers, not the tall type, the long type. And what they were used for is when guys were killed, they would bring the body to the freezer in a body bag, put it in, and the next morning come, they had a key to the back door, and guys would take the body bag out of the freezer. So it was a storage area. Okay, so they were storing the body in a church, in the basement of the church. So, yeah, I mean, when people tell me about religion, I'm saying, oh, I'm glad, that, I'm glad you're faithful and you like religion. And I'm thinking, if you only knew, you know, you knew what really was going on. And there's more to this later on, more to this. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because th there is this idea that we we like to think that people can't say no to the mob, but more often than not, from what I see and from what I read and from research, you kind of do. I don't think they is they. I don't think anyone tested or many people tested in terms of priests and stuff like that saying no because they all seem to actually quite like the idea of being part of it. Well, you have to remember, especially in the case of the priests. Uh, unlike, say, a Jewish rabbi who signs a contract with the temple, the priests don't sign any contract. They have to rely 
on the collection plate on Sunday. And that's a whole other story because I know exactly what Cardinal John Cody in the 70s, at that time, Chicago had the second largest uh, Catholic archdiocese. And I knew what he was doing with the money. I knew how the criminal investigation started. I knew how he met Helen Doolin Wilson, how he opened up accounts for her. Oh, yeah, I know that all about that. I know why the grand jury, I know what the grand jury indicted him. And you see, if, unless the grand jury indictment is opened, it's remained sealed. And his was never opened. He died April 25th, 1982. But it was, that's my mother's birthday. So I remember that. But it was never, ever open. So, yeah, the reason being is this. My father told me pretty much early on, he said, Scott, always remember, he always called me Scotto when it was me and him. It's always Scotto. When I would be, say, with you or anybody else, it was Scott. He'd always call me Scott. He'd say, Scotto, listen, in the life you're going to see that money and fear will manipulate people. Always remember that. Money and fear will manipulate people. And when I go out and do my in-person presentations, David, I can't tell you how many women come up to me and, and are very, very interested. Well, you know, this sounds great. I'm really interested in all this stuff. And they ask me, uh, you know, more questions and what went on. And I'm thinking to myself, you're interested from an outsider's look, but you wouldn't want to be involved in what goes on because of what happens when guys would go away. The kids would always be told, your dad's going to college. He's going away to college. Yeah. Now, David, you're an intelligent man. It doesn't take 15 years of, to get your bachelor's degree in college, okay? Yeah, yeah. The other thing they would be told is uh, your father has an out-of-town job. I'm sure you have friends that have out-of-town jobs, but they're not away for 15 years from the house, okay? But they never wanted their kids to know what was going on. And you have to remember, uh, wise guys, for the most part, my father was different, but wise guys, for the most part, never talk at home what they're doing. So the kids have no idea until much later on in their life, because they'd ask me, is my father in the mafia? Is my father in the mafia? My father would always tell me, Scott, Scott Owen, they ask you this, just say, talk to your father, talk to your uncle, never say anything about anybody. There's a mob saying it with, with the outfit, if it's your business and not my business, it's none of my business. Yeah. Okay. And, and that was really the truth. That was almost like the English version of Omerta, Code of Silence. And so, but I get this from kids. Is my dad in the mafia? Is my uncle in the mafia? And I'd say, well, talk to him. I can't tell you. I don't know. I knew they were. Sure. But I'm not telling them. So, yeah, it was, uh, like I say, a lot of things happened that way. And the, the mob speak was the hardest thing for me in the beginning. Okay. For most people in a movie, and maybe you've seen the movie, they'll say, oh, guy, get whack him. He gets whacked, which is a way of being killed. But there's another saying. When the order is given, I can't remember how many times I'd hear Paul Rico or Sam Giancana, because I'd be with my father, give him his receipt. So, yeah. David, if you're in a store and the clerk says to you, uh, Mr. Watson, would you like your receipt? Make sure those comfortable sneakers are tied up tight and run for that door. That means kill him. <laughs> that means take his life. That's what yeah. it's about. I got, when a guy got shot, three in the back of the head. In the back of the head. Okay. So, yeah, it was uh, that was hard because, I remember, I have to go back and assimilate myself with kids in the neighborhood. I had to go back and, uh, you know, be, be a kid like them, try and fit in. You know, I'm leading two different lives. It's interesting because you, you mentioned that in the book about um, your dad would take you on visits to widows, knowing who killed yeah. them. 
and you'd have to and you actually talk about how uh in the book you talk about how well bobby um how he gets really good at pretending he's upset at weights at funerals talking to the widows yeah. knowing yeah when he knew who killed them and in some cases had seen them get killed and he set up the kills he set up the hits he'd mm. be told set it up set it up we have to remember see in the life okay there was only one free day so if you can remember when you were a child with your family uh, celebrating thanksgiving right celebrating christmas and those days at one o'clock in the afternoon I'd be out with my father collecting money, juice money, which is loan sharking money and gambling money. And Christmas Day, he'd always say, well, wait till one o'clock so the kids can open up their gifts and then we'll go out. Normally, we'd start our way on the south side or southern suburbs. I mean, I could, we started at one. I might not get home till nine o'clock. These guys knew my father was coming. So I, the only, I never had a Thanksgiving or Christmas. I'm out collecting money. But the only free day was Mother's Day. Mother's Day was the only free day. Everyone goes to see mom. So no one got beat up. No one got killed. Nothing, nothing bad happened in 12, until Monday morning, 12.01 a.m. That's when things happen. That's when it happens. I remember I was out with a guy. Where I was 11 years old and it was 12.10 a.m. And the guy says, the guy, wise guy says, Scott, what time you got on your wristwatch? And I said, okay. He says, because... I don't know if my watch is working right. Let's go get the guy. And he goes to the guy's house and the guy says, uh, are you sure you got the right time? Maybe your time is off. He said, no, it's not off. I'm here for the money. You have the money or else you're going to get beat. And the guy got beat. He got beat. So, yeah, a Mother's Day was the only free day. And my father during the week would get candy. And then on S Sunday, Mother's Day, we'd go at uh, 6 a.m. in the morning to a floral shop and start buying the flowers. And then at that point later in the morning, maybe 11, we start going to the houses of uh, either wives who uh, had their husbands who were away in a federal facility or mothers whose sons were in a federal facility. And my father would bring them candy and flowers for that day. Because that's something that's slightly different. And you do talk about how films get some of it wrong and, and some of the things that happen in real life. In, in the films, they talk about if you if somebody gets killed, or if somebody goes inside, you stay away from the wives. You leave them alone, especially if somebody's yeah. in prison. But there's bits in the book where you, you talk about how your dad goes to visit people and check in on them, and and like when somebody yeah. and when one one particular wife had her husband killed, your dad went round with you, and you were actually he was checking that she, you know, like is there any money? No. Well, you probably need to sell the house, and you know. And he actually leaves her some money, and he does some things, and that. But yeah. he also warns her not to date anybody in, in the mob, or the outfit. That's correct. That's correct. See what it was. My father was very handy. He could do electrical work. He can do carpentry. He could do um, plumbing, though he didn't like plumbing. He could reupholster furniture. He could work on cars, and he'd always after someone's husband went away, was sentenced, okay, was going away, he'd always tell the wife, if you have a problem with the doorbell, call me. If you have a problem with the sink, it's leaking, call me. He said, if you have a problem with the roof, I'll get a roofer. I know a couple of roofers. My father always took this approach that it's not the wife or the kid's fault and they shouldn't suffer, okay? They shouldn't suffer. Because you have to remember, one thing the movies 
get wrong. They'll say, oh, this guy's being taken care of. No. The only thing is once a guy went away, if, if he had a, a territory, they wanted his territory. They didn't care about the guy at all. It didn't matter what happened. I, like I talk about in my book, a woman goes to see a guy, a boss, and he tells her, he says, uh, use your moneymaker. And what that meant was go on the street and prostitute yourself. That's what he's telling her. And her husband was part of his street crew. And he wasn't, that's all he would tell her. Use your moneymaker, which means use your body on the street, prostitute yourself for whatever money you could get, five bucks, 10 bucks, because that's all the pavement princesses get on the street. Okay, it's so maybe five bucks, 10 bucks, and they use it for drugs. So no, they weren't uh, interested at all about them. My father was, sometimes he'd, him and my mother would take the uh, wife uh, out for dinner, go to a movie, okay? Because my father would always say, it's not their fault. But he'd always say to me, Scott, when you get involved with the life, you're gonna, hey, this is what's gonna happen. I'll tell you how many times uh, bosses would say to me, Scott, I'd like you to go out with my daughter. Or, 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 or an uncle would say, Scott, go out with my niece. Well, I got to remember these little Madonnas by the age of 16 had the Corvette. And this is what really happens. Say they would say someone like uh, David Watson, they meet him and he's a nice guy. And they say, oh, David, come on, let's go downstairs in the basement. I just want to talk to you. And he'd say to you, a wise guy would say to you, David, how much money do you earn? And you tell him, you know, what you earn on your job. And, he, and the wise guy would say, you know, David, uh, my daughter's used to a better life. How about you come with me? I can pay you more money. Okay. And that some guys would fall for that and they would go into the life. Okay. They got started that way because they couldn't refuse what the father was saying. And the father basically was saying, you can't take care of my daughter. I don't want my daughter looking. In other words, I don't want my daughter driving a Chevy or Ford. I want her driving a sports car, like, you know, that type of deal. So I wasn't going to go through that. They'd want to take me down to the basement. They said, no, I have to go to the bathroom. I'll be back. Or, you know, I wouldn't do it. So I didn't date any of these girls. But yeah, a lot of their guys, yeah, they, they wanted me to go out with them. And they said, you're a nice guy. They'll have a good life. I said, well, I don't know how much of a father I could be from prison. You know, that type of yeah, thing. Yeah. So, no, I stayed away. I stayed away. Um, how did your dad get into it? Well, what, what happened was this. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I first told my mother that uh, it was my last semester and I was 17, not 18 yet, be in a few months. And I told my mother that I was, I got an application for Wilbur Wright Junior College. And in those days, the junior colleges in Chicago, the tuition was free. You had to pay for books, but the tuition was free. And I said to her, you know, mom, um, I'm not interested in going into the life full time. Okay. I'm not, I don't want to be a participant. I'll be an observer which I was, but I don't want to be a participant. And, and people say, well, what's the difference? I said, when you're participating, that's when you can get arrested and you get charged because you're doing something, you're part of something. When you're looking at something, they need evidence. So what kind of evidence can they get from someone who's just watching but not participating in drug dealing and chop shops, okay? Any other mob activity, loan sharking, gambling, money laundering, extortion. I knew how to... Uh, forge documents. I wasn't good at safe cracking. They tried to teach me that, that I could never do. But yeah, I was good. So, you know, she, I, she says to me, says, Scott, look, just tell him, just tell him. That's the easiest, just tell him. So my father came home 
And he worked regular jobs, okay, to get a W-2. So he'd have legit money, okay? Because the IRS criminal division is always investigating these guys. Where are you getting the money? Okay, for example, Tony Accardo's house in River Forest was 24,000 square feet. That's a big house. I think you would agree with me. That's kind of a big house. Six okay. bedrooms, six beds. But on a beer salesman salary that he worked, he would say he worked for Pabst Blue Ribbon Bear as a beer salesman. Now, how can a beer salesman pay the taxes on a 24,000 square foot house? If you know, please let me know. Okay. So my father comes home and I said, Dad, I want to talk. We go in the living room of the apartment because we always lived in one bedroom apartments. My sister and myself, my mother and father. And I said, look, I decided that I'm going to go to Wright Junior College. I'm not sure what I really want to study, so that's why I'm going to a junior college to take some courses and see what I would really like to do with my life. And he turned to me and says, look, Scott, oh, this is it. The worst thing a parent can do is to force a child into something they don't want to do because 30 years later, they're going to come back to you and say, you forced me into this. You forced me to be an accountant or to be a salesman. You know, you, you forced me because obviously at that, teenage age, they don't have the life experiences that I might have or you might have as an older person. They'll maybe listen to their fathers or mothers. So he said to me, if, if you want to further your education, you want to go into the business world in some capacity, I'm with you 150%. I'm back, backing you 150%. Go ahead and make that dream possible and graduate from college. And that's how he was. And I told him, I would I don't want to be a participant. I would be an observer. And I was. Things continue, okay? After I graduated college, it wasn't like, no, I cut everything off. But I didn't have dealings with these guys in a participating manner. Okay. So he accepted it and, you know, went from there. And I went on to college. I, you know, got a scholarship to Long Island University in Brooklyn. I had to come up with the room and board as they were paying for tuition. And so I started working my social clubs, Colombo. Lucchese, Bonanno, and Lucchese, I worked at a place called The Suite. It was a hotel. It was owned by Henry Hill. So that's how I got to know the real good fellows. I got to know the real Sopranos and other mob families, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Rochester, New York, Buffalo, who was called The Arm, Boston Providence or Providence, Boston, that family, they're known as The Company, and they're still active today, as is uh, Buffalo still active. So, yeah, when people tell me about movies, yeah, I knew these people, the Irishman, oh, what a character he was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Henry Hill is probably the, it's, well, he's obviously synonymous because of the Goodfellas. Uh, Goodfellas and he, he's probably one of the most famous due, due to the films, um, sort of mob people out there. And, you know, he, he, was, he was half Italian, wasn't he? Half Irish, half Italian. Um, yeah, he was. No, he was. He was Irish. He could never be made. Yeah, because you have to be hundred percent on both sides, and he wasn't a hundred percent. Yeah, because wasn't his, his mum? Was mum was. Yeah, his mum was. I thought his mum was Italian, but that might just be. Yeah, from the film. but it didn't matter because it no. wasn't a hundred percent Italian on both sides. So the Irish side was what defeated any purpose because he told me, he says, you know, I can't be made like your father can't be made. I says, yeah, I know because you're not a, a, Italian on both sides. You got to be Italian on both sides. But so how, how did your dad was, get I, into it? How did your dad become part of the outfit? Well, what happened was my father, was, when he was two years old and his brother was uh, six months old, they, he was born. They lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the father died. 
So the mother had relatives in Chicago on Taylor Street, Taylor and Ogden, that owned a three-flat, a three-story apartment building. And that's how they came, because there was an opening on the third floor. Now, normally, in those days, and even when I was a kid, if you lived on the third floor of a three-flat building or three-story building, the rent would be a little bit cheaper, because these were high-storing buildings, so the rent would be a little cheaper. So, yeah, my father was, uh, they moved to Chicago, and uh, he was a good student. He was a very good student. In fact, uh, his senior year in high school, he met the assistant principal, because my father worked in the cafeteria to get a free lunch, and that's how they really met. And the assistant principal said to my father, well, what what do you want to do? And, uh, you know, he said, would you like to go to college? I looked up your record. It's very good. And my father says, yeah, he says, well, what would you like to do? And my father at that point told me he wanted to be a surgeon. That's what he really wanted to do. He wanted to be a medical doctor. So the assistant principal uh, said, um, let me see, you know, I got a couple of friends. Let me see what I can do. And a couple of months later, he comes back and he tells my father, uh, a friend of his guy he knows is in the admissions office for the University of Chicago. And the guy's heard the story and he saw his, my father's grades, assistant principal gave him the grades. And he says, he's willing to give you a full scholarship. You could be a pre-med major. My father was very excited. He goes home, he tells my mother, uh, grandmother, uh, you know, I'm, I got a scholarship to go to the University of Chicago, be a pre-med major. And she says, very nice, go to work. So how the reason he called Sam Giancana was this. When he was in his, te- in his teens, my father was a member of a Jewish community center on the swimming team. And Sam Giancana in his 42s, that was his street gang. And they used to hang out at a restaurant called the 42nd Cafe, based, I think, on 42nd Street in New York. And they were always with him. And he told my father, it's going to cost you, I think it was either two or three pennies to cross Taylor Street to go to this uh, community center. My father says, I'm not giving you two or three pennies because that was still a lot of money. And Sam Giancana says, well, you're not going across the street. And Sam Giancana pulls out a small knife and he sticks it in my father's hand. And my father who goes home and uses some, I guess, rubbing alcohol, that was it. It wasn't like today where everyone's running to the emergency room, scratch or something. And uh, next day, he's going to swim practice, the same thing, Sam Giancana's, uh, you know, saying you know, two or three pennies to cross Taylor Street. And my father said, okay, I'll give you something. And he punched Sam Giancana and knocked him down. And the 42s start moving at my father. And that, some of those 42s never liked my father after that. And Sam Jean kind of like says, wait a minute, he gets up. I guess he, his lip was bleeding just a little bit, nothing major. He says, why do you want to go across the street to this community center? Because he didn't know at that point. And my father told him I'm on the swim team. And he says, can you teach me how to swim? Because Sam Jean kind of didn't know how to swim. And he says, yes, I can, except you, you're going to have to change your name. It's going to have to be Sam Rosenberg. You can't be Jean Conner and go across the street. You've got to be Sam Rosenberg. So he went and uh, crossed the street. And my father would try and teach him to swim. And I say, try, because years later, maybe 20 years later, my, I asked my father, did he ever learn to swim? Because whenever I'd see him, he'd always float on his back. I never saw him do the freestyle or the butterfly or, you know, any of the swimming strokes. It was just floating. And my father said, I'll tell you, Scotto, uh, he was so tense in the water that the only thing I could do is teach him to float on his back. Because I really had the feeling he was trying to kill the waves, but he didn't have a gun to do it. So he fought it all the time. And it's true. You know, you always fought it. Because people would ask me, what was Sam Giancana like? And I was always, I'd always tell him it was a violent mind and a violent body. Okay, so that's how he got to know him. him. 
And when he couldn't go to college at that point, he needed a job. And Sam Gene kind of says, do you know how to drive a beer truck? My father said, yes. I don't know if he really did or he didn't. He said, because I'll, I'll ride shotgun with a shotgun to you. We have to make runs up to Milwaukee or Al Capone, who my father called Big Al. He says, okay. And that's how it started. They developed a, really a friendship there because after Al Capone was uh, convicted of the tax charge, and I always tell people, if you want to use a good trivia question, catch people and say, well, who got convicted with Al Capone? It was Frank Nitty, or as my father called him, Frank Nutty, Nutty Nitty. But Sam Giancana was a protege of Paul Rica, and he started to talk with Paul Rica about my father. And, I, I, you know, he's interested, and he said, look, my father was young, early 20s maybe at that point. He said, I want you to manage the black hands. And my father played cards with the black hands. The black hands, Al Capone was actually a black hand, came from, from Brooklyn. And everyone was fearful of the black hands because this is how, they were all extortionists, but they were very violent. Yeah. But since they were born in Sicily and came to America, they would not accept anybody in the mob who was not Sicilian. And if you were from Northern Italy, they would accept you, but you could never be a leadership in any leadership position. Never. They would accept you from Northern Italy, but no, it was all Sicilians. And what they would do is they'd go to a building and, uh, you know, uh, say an office, a grocery, or a grocery store, and they'd tell the people, you know, the neighborhoods, there's some problems here. You need protection. You, you know, we're trying to help you. And of course, uh, the owner of the grocery store, the restaurant would say, get out of here, get out of here. And uh, that night, the black hands would put a picture of a black hand on the door, which meant they're coming after you. And the next day, the same thing. Uh, we, you know, you need protection in the neighborhood. It's changing. Different people are coming in. The owner would throw them out. And that night, the windows were broken. They worked in phases. My father always said it's phases. Phase one was break the windows, go back. No, I'm not going to give you money. Phase two was burn the building down. They would torch the building. Okay, grocery store get torched. Guys, you know, you know, really upset. They go back for three, phase three, and they say, well, when you get it rebuilt, um, you see what we said, this neighborhood's got a lot of problems. And if the guy was, at that point, wasn't really reneging, it was kind of agreeing. And one guy would say to him, look, if you don't give us the money, the next thing we go after is you. And the guy says, how much do you want? That would be it. So the black hands were, everyone was very much afraid of the black hands. It was always a big problem. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of stuff about a lot of people. And one of the things is Mayor Anton Cermak, who was on, was with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1932 when he was running for president. And they were in Miami for a speaking engagement. And uh, Cermak stood up and got shot. And history will always say he took a bullet for FDR. No, that was not the case. I'll tell you it wasn't the case. Because what happened was he, when he became mayor, he said, I'm getting rid of these black hands. I'm getting rid of all these mobsters. I'm going to clean up the first ward in Chicago, which was mob run. The black hands didn't want to hear it at all. It was the black hands who killed him that day. wasn't He wasn't taking no bullet for anybody. He got killed that day because he he made he vowed to voters, "I'm going to get rid of the mob. I'm going to get rid of the mob." Well, the outfit has been around for 120 years. Okay, so you tell me, has anyone gotten rid of them? That was no. so. Like I said, a lot of things about a lot of people. Believe me. One of the things that fascinates me with with the, the the stories and everything and it's, it's just it's also quite disturbing in a way 
and and it's not it's not just the violence it's not just the violence and bear, and i say this as somebody who's glued to mafia stuff you know i'm as intrigued as every other person but you could literally be running a, a crew running a street with somebody for 10 20 30 years your best friend and if he gets an order to put to hit, to hit you he's going to do it and the, the, there's no evidence that i see of any loyalty and they they turn on you like you can turn on a tap or turn on a light. Yeah, my father would always say it's like turning on a switch in a room and turning the light on. He'd always tell me right from the beginning when I was eight years old, because we talk about personalities. My father always, we spent a lot of time on a lot of things, but he would always talk about personalities, not only mob personalities, but personalities you're going to meet in the world. The guy who's your friend and he knifes you in the back, the guy who runs to the boss with your idea how to make something better you know, the moody guy, but my father was one personality you always got to watch. And that's the quiet guy, because you don't know what the quiet guy is thinking. All these other guys, they're running their mouth, you, you know. But the thing with that is, in the beginning, he said to me, always remember, Scott, you have no friends here. Remember that you have no friends. They're not your friends, because the loyalty is always to mob family. And I'll give you an example. In the movie, we'll say in the movie, um, The Irishman, I knew Russell Buffalino. Okay, mm -hmm. I knew Buffalino. I know, and I I knew Raymond Patriarca Senior. Both those guys were close with Frank Sinatra, but that's not what you're asking. So we'll put that story on the side. And Buffalino, I think, it might have been a second child, maybe. Uh, the wife's bag breaks. Now, we as men, we don't know what pregnancy's like, but we know this: that if the bag breaks, she has to go to the hospital right away. It's not like uh, tomorrow yeah. morning we can do it. Okay, so she. His Buffalino's wife tells him this. And Buffalino was in charge of uh, Square, Pennsylvania, Scranton, and Erie. That was his area. But he was heavy. He was very heavy into La Cosa Nostra. He was, he was high-ranking in that sense. And he, you know what he tells her? I got to go to a meeting. Find your own way to get there. He walks out of the house. Okay? Now her bag is... So she goes across to a neighbor... And the guy was very nice. I guess he was very nice. He said, oh, no, we got to go to the hospital right away. And the guy's wife said, yeah, yeah, come on, let's go. And, and she says, well, I don't have anything packed. She says, don't worry about it. Give me your key and I'll come later. You know, I'll come back. We'll pack something for you. She got to get to the hospital. Okay. And they took, they were the ones who took her to the hospital. So was there any loyalty by Buffalino to his wife? No, the loyalty was he had to go to a meeting and we come first. And when, when guys are made, they're always told the family, our family comes first. If we want you three in the morning. You got to show up three in the morning. If you if your kid's having a birthday party or something, school activity, you got to be there. When I graduated from grammar school, my father was no one from my family was there. When I graduated high school, I didn't have anybody there. When I was graduated from New York, okay, that was a distance. Nobody was there. But it was very difficult to see the moms and dads hugging their kids or taking pictures. We're going to go to a restaurant. No, I didn't have that. All I had, all I did was walk home and be by myself and no i didn't have anybody there okay that's how it was so yeah he'd always you know it's funny you bring this up in 1998 in west hollywood california i'm invited to a party there and three guys come out of a car and they're all actors because i recognized right one one of them right away it was ray liotta yep. who in the movie played at the hill so he was uh you know he comes in and people i say oh it's ray liotta ray liotta they're all excited and I'm off to the side and I figure I got to see, you know, I want to talk to him. 
But I'll wait. See, if he goes in the, you know, yard, the backyard, and he was a heavy smoker. He had a gold pack compartment type thing, and then he took the cigarette out. And he's back there in the yard. He's by himself, and he's smoking. And I go out there and say, oh, Mr. Leota, I really enjoy your work. You're a great actor. And, but can I ask you something? Is it okay? He says, sure, go right ahead. He was very nice. And I said, well, what do you think about Henry? And he says, Henry who? And I said, well, well, in that movie, good guys or good something. You know, this guy, Henry. He said, you mean Henry Hill? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's the guy. He said, every second I was with him, I was scared. And I'm thinking, here's Ray Liotti plays all these tough guys in the movie and yeah. everything. And, and he says to me, how do you know Henry? I said, oh, you know, it was just kind of passing. I'm not telling him how I know Henry. Okay. I just said it was a guy passing. But I, I said, uh, so, you, you know, I said, I looked at the uh, publicity photos from the movie of you and Henry, and you're both smiling. And he said to me, I'll tell you, he said, I smiled under duress. I was afraid if I didn't smile, Henry was going to do something. So, yeah, that's why it looks. We're both friendly. We're both smiling. But no, he said, I was scared every moment. He said, I was glad to get away from the guy. And Henry was a mob groupie. That, I'll tell you, that's how it all started with Henry. He lived across the street from Paul Barrio. It yeah. all started that yeah. way. You know, it was like a, a kid lives across the street from the drug dealer. He sees all the nice car, the nice clothes, the girls. Well, that's what Henry saw. And that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. Paul Vario was a mean guy. Very mean guy. He was giving a woman a crack in the face. Yeah. Yeah, he was mean. That's what Jimmy Burke reported. Another character. But yeah. Well, because well, that's, I mean, how, because I mean, in, I mean, effectively, I mean, even in Goodfellas, they he at the beginning they actually talk about the fact he, he basically just saw the lifestyle and fell in love with it, and you yeah, know, he, he he you know he he doesn't even you know he, he doesn't shy away from saying that. But in in whether the film is correct or not, it does portray him as somebody that he likes the lifestyle, but he's not a natural born killer compared to some of them. He'll kill out of necessity, well, but not that's... out of. So you you write, you know, in in very early in the book, you talk about when you see. I think the chap's name was Wally, where he kicks a pregnant woman, just and yeah, and I had to water that down. Yeah, yeah, but you made a very interesting point, and I, I you know, and I want to kind of reference this is that it didn't really matter whether the husband was there or not. It didn't really matter whether she'd have given the husband up or not. He he had an intention to hurt somebody, and she was there, so she was getting it. And what she didn't know, or would never know, there was no way she was getting out of that. She could have done. She could have given him the money. He'd have found a reason to smack her. That was his. Oh yeah, it was, you know, yeah. The, the, it's just their makeup. They they that's what gives. And you point that out that when you got into the car, you realised he just enjoyed hurting people. Yeah, there were, there, were, there were a lot of guys like that. Is once they get into the rage, see, it's all, all about a rage. They get into the rage, and they knew they had to come back with the money because the next order could be them. And yeah. in that case, the reason I had to water it down, she was pregnant. Yeah. Okay? And it wasn't just giving her a crack in the face. Okay? He's well, you write, because you write in the book, he kicks her in the stomach despite the fact she's pregnant. Quite a bit. Yeah, and the blood is pouring out of her mouth. Like when you see an oil well in the blood, that's yeah. how it's pouring out on her. So yeah, he didn't stop. And I didn't know if she was gonna, if the fetus was gonna make it, the baby. I didn't know what was, but I had to water it down because people would get very nauseous. You know, 
some people act tough, but you put something in front of them like that. Or what I saw dogs, what happened to dogs, I had to leave that out completely. I never put that in the book, what I saw, what happened to dogs that were owned by guys who owned money, what happened to them. And what I mean, what happened to them was if they saw the dog in the backyard, oftentimes, you know, people leave have their dog in the backyard. Mm-hmm. They come back with poison, all different types of poison, rat poison, anything they could put in and throw it over the fence and watch the dog eat it. Okay. And one, uh, if the dog didn't pass down right away, one guy had a tranquilizer gun and he shoot the dog with the tranquilizer gun. Okay. So then the dog now is passed out. It's eating this meat that, that's poison. It's going to die. And guy would go in with an axe, small handled axe, and start chopping the dog's head off, all the body parts of the dog. Yeah. Could people handle that who are pet owners? I knew oh, yeah. so many people are pet owners. Now they're not going to be able to handle that. So like the pregnant woman, which I watered down, like the dogs, I didn't put anything in about dogs because I know people are pet owners. It would be very, very upsetting. It was hard for me. And I've never had a pet, you know, to see that. You know, it's enough. You're killing the dog, but to go in and mutilate the dog, cut his hands off, cut his paws off, just keep hacking away at him. And that's what it is with guys. See, once they get into a rage, until the rage goes over, they don't care. Okay? So I put it on automatic. You're told to do this, and you do it. And it's, it's going to be done. And nothing's going to stop them. Okay? Nothing's going to stop them. And my father would always say, that's why you can't, they're never consider them a friend, because they're not going to be a friend, because if they're told to do something to you. See, there was, besides the killings, there was two other things. They, to get beaten, it was either, you know, rough them up or beat them. Now, roughing someone's up meant that maybe you give him a crack in the face, you grab his throat and push him against the wall. Maybe you give him a punch in the stomach. That would be about it. To beat a guy, and they'd ask my father, how do you want him? Do you want him uh, beat or, or, you know, roughed up? My father says, in this case, beat him. And beat him meant was uh, they'd take like a a blackjack, a small blackjack with that, uh, like grip on it. And start beating the guy, breaking his nose, breaking his jaw, breaking his, his you know, face, uh, the, uh, say, the cheekbones on both sides, not only breaking them, but shattering them, okay? Yeah. Knocking the guy yeah. down, then taking his head and start pounding it into the ground and then start kicking him. And they'd always say to me, how many ribs, how many ribs should I kick out? How many should I break? And keep kicking them until they, they maybe didn't break all the guy's ribs, but uh, enough that the guy would have to go to the hospital, but he was severely beaten. So, yeah, like I say, once they got going, that was it. Well, you mentioned that, what, what is it films, let's do both sides of it. What do films get right and what do they get wrong? Well, they get right in the sense that they're calling it the mob. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that, that's, that, that they get right, I'll give them that. What they get wrong is, and they do an excellent job of entertainment. This is the whole thing. It's always about entertainment, right? And uh, they portray things. You have to remember that the people say, like Martin Scorsese, who does an excellent job, of course, they don't know what the life is really like. Okay, you got, they got a technical advisor. But the technical advisor, sometimes they color things a bit. But the director, the producer, they have no idea. So they think, okay, this is the way it really is. And they try and portray something through their lenses, through what they're seeing. And it's not like that at all. I mean, if I talk to Robert De Niro, his face would 
you, I could just see it now. His eyes would get real big. And really what Jimmy Burke was like, really what Jimmy Burke was mm -hmm. like. Okay. And uh, wasn't that. And the real Tommy, Tommy De Simone, was very, very psychotic, extremely psychotic. He was a guy we first met at that time uh, when I was working, uh, you know, with, at Henry Hill's place, the suite in New York, drinking age was 18. Now, the federal government would later change that. Every state became 21, but New York was 18. And I was about 20, and Tommy was about 20. And uh, he, I had heard that he killed somebody. And I said, Tommy, what happened with this gentleman? He was walking down the street in front of you. Uh, Howard Goldstein was his name. He said, yeah. He, he said, he walked down Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. Then he took a right, went down a side street. And I put, uh, you know, I used my gun and put three in the hat and two in the chest. And I said, well, uh, was he mobbed? Was he mobbed up? Was he involved with the mob anyway? Did he owe money? He says, no. He says, I got a new gun and I had to try it out. That was his answer to me. I got a new gun and I had to try it out. Tommy was the type of guy, if you played cards with him and he lost, he was throwing cards at you. If you were playing darts with him, lost, he'd throw darts at you. And the one thing that got Tommy into trouble, my father would always say, guys like Tommy aren't going to make it past 30. And he got killed at 28. Was he killed two made Gambino guys? And one of the yeah. guys he killed, one of the guys he killed, a lot of people don't know this, he started out with John Gotti when they both began in mob life, Carmen Fatico, street crew, okay? And Gotti was very close with, with Billy Bats, very close. And Paul and Paul Vario gave him up. He gave him up because he wanted John Gotti had a warehouse at that time. And it was all about what was going to happen after the Lufthansa deal, you know, where they stole the money out from yeah. Lufthansa, the yeah. $6.4 And so he gave him up to John Gotti. Other people say it was other people, but no, it wasn't. I mean, the scene in the movie where I had to go back and look at these movies. I never used to watch them. But now after my book come out and people ask me questions, I had to see the movie. And it really, that was true. That was a true part where the guys from the Casey crime family walked out of the room and left Tommy alone and John Gotti put three in the hat. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, they don't know the real people. Okay. They don't know the real people. They don't really know how Jimmy so, Burke. Tommy so, so, so and would somebody oh, like, would somebody like Tommy and Jimmy Burke be difficult to be around? Yeah, he would be. He would be, depending on what Paul Vario wanted him to do. Okay, that became the issue. Is is what does your copper Jimmy tell you that he wants done? And you got to remember, Jimmy Burke was a cokehead. He was into coke very heavily. Him, Henry Hill, Angelo Sepi, and Tommy D. Simone. I always see him in the back, and they were always they'd they'd offer it to me. He says Scott, you want a line? You want a line? I says no, it itches my nose. I, it was a lie. I never used drugs. But I had to come up with something. I said, no, it itches my nose. And I start sneezing. And one sneeze with cocaine, it's just on the table. You'll blow it away. So, no, Jimmy Burke was, uh, they call him General, General Jimmy. Yeah, you know, but how would, you, how would someone like you navigate being around them so that you didn't get, get in the crossfire of, of just uh, well, being I, angry? Well, I would, know, I would know what to say and how to talk to him. For example, Tommy D. Simone, And he's telling me, after all this other stuff, he's saying, you know, I got uncles in the mob. And he had family that was in the Gambino family. He was with Lucchese crime family. But he had a couple of brothers. And he said, you know, I got a couple of uncles that are in the mob in California. And I said, Los Angeles? And he said, yeah. I said, you know, Los Angeles reports to Chicago. They were one of the, some of the crime families, you know, like Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Des Moines, St. Louis, Omaha, Nebraska. They all reported. 
to doctor. My father expanded when Tony Cardo took over. And Tommy says, yeah, I got two uncles. What about it? And I says, well, I, I know, probably know your uncles or they know my father. And he says, okay, okay. And I said, why don't you call him? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So two days later, I'm back working, depending on my school schedule. That dictated when I would work, of course. And he comes up to me right away and says, yeah, I talked to one of my uncles. I told him I'm working with this kid whose father's high ranking in the outfit. He said to me, uh, Tommy, whatever the kid wants, you do. Okay, don't start with the outfit. Don't ever start with the outfit. And he was, from that point on, he was always nice to me. Always nice to me. And I would always keep a vanilla con. You know, when we talk conversation, how he was a Mets fan, you know, this, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in the life, everything was done first class. So the hot clubs in, in New York at the time was the Copacabana. And uh, Latin, King, Latin King was, was big, which was owned by Barbara Walters' father. That's a whole nother story about him. And, uh, you know, everything was done first class. And I'd say, oh, Tommy, did you get tickets to go see, say, Frank Sinatra if he was playing there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because say you wanted to see Frank Sinatra. Say you wanted to see some top performer, Tony Bennett. But you said, I can't get tickets. Well, a phone call would be made to someone. And all of a sudden, you're getting tickets for the third row. And all of a sudden, you're taken backstage to take pictures and talk with Tony Bennett and everything. So, yeah, but Tommy was different once he found out because he was told by his uncles. One of his uncles says, listen, the outfit can put more guns on the street than the Lucchese crime family. And that was the truth. Yeah. Okay, because we had yeah. these other cities reporting. So from that point on, oh, Tommy wasn't psychotic anymore. Okay, he wasn't going to be psychotic. So I got along with them. The same thing. I, when they knew I was, my father was high ranking in the outfit, it was a whole different story because they're asking me all about Las Vegas because the outfit runs Las Vegas, which was true. We ran Las Vegas. The Las Vegas and Florida was open. Any crime family could operate in Nevada, but they could operate in, in Florida. And Las Vegas how do you was think, how, how do you think your dad managed to stay alive? Well, how, how he did was because he worked, uh, like I say, in, in you know, the uh, areas because of the money he's bringing in, okay? The money he's bringing in, not only Las Vegas, he had other plans. He had a good drug plan, very good drug plan. Because when I met with 22 retired FBI agents and their spouses, I said, uh, one of the spouses, uh, she was a book club member and she heard about the book and a friend got her the book and she said, my husband's a retired agent. She called me and I said, well, What's his name? And sure, he was one of the agents that was working OC cases, organized crime cases, and later became known as uh, La Cosa Nostra cases that came later on. And I met with them and uh, with their wives. I said, if they sign my book, I'll come. If not, I leave. So I went to the restaurant and they paid for my meal. And they signed the book and I told them about with my father's drug plan, which was not implemented. And that's, there was another reason for that. And they said, no, we never would have figured it out. And the drug plan was the mules, the carriers, were going to be all women and they were going to be dressed up in business suits and they'd be given locked uh, briefcases. They wouldn't know what they had and they'd have to deliver. And like I said to him, I said, would you have known it was a woman who's carrying heroin? Mm. They'd say, no, you'd be looking for a guy because mob life is macho. It's macho. Yeah. You know, it's macho. And I, one time I asked my father, I said, dad, could a woman ever run the outfit, a day-to-day -day operation? I figured, you know, I'm joking. I figure he's going to say, Scott, Scott, are you kidding? Come on. It's a man's world. He says to me, 
Scott, in uh, prison, there's women in prison, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, there's women that have shot and killed their husbands, their boyfriends, their lovers, their uncles, right? And I said, yeah. So that means if they can pull the trigger, they can give the order on somebody, right? And I said, okay. yeah. He said, the only, the only thing is you've got to find that woman. <laughs> you know, that's the problem. That, you know, but he, was, he never felt that a woman couldn't run day to day as long as they could pull the trigger. If they're in prison for shooting somebody, yeah, they can pull the trigger as much as they might have remorse. That wouldn't mean anything because once you pull the trigger, you lose any fear. You know, that was it. What, what do you think your dad did, though, that was different? Because he, he, he gave orders, received orders. He, he always seemed to navigate the situation one step, if not three steps ahead, but without making enemies. Well, there, uh, there were enemies, sure. There were people that didn't like him, obviously. Yeah, but there were enemies, but, and then there's real enemies. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's correct. And what it was was my father knew right away, right from Jump Street, what type of personalities he was dealing with, what he could say, what he couldn't say. And like I say, I go back to the, the mob statement, the mob uh, like law, of, if it's your business and not my business, it's none of my business. Yeah. And he knew exactly what to say, when to say it, just to listen or, or be supportive. You'd be supportive when, uh, the, how, I know how the Kennedys and the outfit started. That's a long, long, long story. But when Sam Jean kind of told him, about Calneva. It always was all about Calneva, the casino on uh, South Lake Tahoe on Nevada, California border in the mountains there. And he told my, and told Sam Giancana, oh, that's great. I said, Sam, if that's what you want. That's great. You're the boss. You make the decision. You'd always make it with people. You're the boss. You're in charge. You tell me what you want me to do and I'll carry it out for you. So he never rubbed anybody the wrong way. He never did. And that was the difference. See, a lot of guys would make mistakes because their egos got real big because they're able to manipulate people because of money, because of fear. And that became very, very big. Okay. And very, very big for these guys. Because if you can manipulate someone, you got them. They're yours. Okay. And uh, that was the thing. He knew how to navigate the people by knowing how far he could go in what he was saying and when he had to be supportive, when he would say, that's a good idea. I didn't think about that. I'm glad you told me. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. Because he would always tell me, with wise guys, you always got to check them out. Because 90% of the time is lies and 10% is BS. And then he would say to me, Scott, I'll remember this. If your mother says she loves you, check her out. And I said, even if mom says she loves don't even accept her love unless you check it out to make sure. And that's how he was able to do it. My father didn't have a big ego. That was the deal. That was the reason. He knew what to say, when to say it, how to say it, what voice inflection. Yeah. So that was it. Just want to, for my last sort of question, because I, I know both of us need to kind of um, move on. Um, one of the things that is always on the, the fringe of all of these films is the Jewish mobsters. So you hear about the Italians, you hear about the Irish and how interlinked they are. The Jewish always seem to be on the very edge. But from what I can figure out and from what I can gather, the Jewish mob was just as big, just had the same sort of powers, were just as nasty. But they somehow seem to have stayed silent and under the radar of all of the books and all of the films. And it's almost like the Italian mob want everybody to know. And the Jewish are like, well, we'd rather nobody knew who we were. 
Well, with, with the Jewish mob, which of course goes back to the 20s, Murder Incorporated in New York was run by Jews and all the shooters were Italian, okay? And some of them became Joe Bonanno, Joe Colombo, a lot of them ran families. But there's, a, there's an old saying, of course, and as generations came up, the younger Jewish guys, nobody went, they went to college. Just like I'm asked, and I'll tell you real quick, they'll say, what happened to the Irish gangs of the 1920s? Okay, I'll hear that a lot. And I'd always say, well, they became cops, prosecutors, and judges. That's what happened to them. But the thing was, there's a, there was always a saying that Jews kill for each other, Italians kill each other. And that was really what it was about, see? Because the Jewish mobsters, and they were just as bad, like you say, but they looked at things on a business sense, okay? How do we run it as a business? How do we make money as a business? Because if you're not bringing in the money, it's like a guy who has a store. If no, he doesn't have the customers, doesn't have the business, he's out of business. So that's why they'd be involved that way. That's why with the outfit, there was so many businesses, so many ways of bringing in money. I mean, it was the unions you're getting 10% on. Anyone who had a state or city or county contract, construction company, demolition, insurance, they were getting you know 10% of those contracts. So much things were happening. So much things. I always remember uh, it's near the Jewish holiday. The most holiest day is called Yom Kippur. And vending machines were big business, big business, okay, as were jukeboxes and were pinball machines. And we go to the northeast side of Chicago, and the guy's name is Jack Crandell, and he owned, he was a gambler, but he had a vending machine business, and I was collecting. So I'm with Lawrence Newman, whose father was a Quaker, and his mother was Jewish, okay? And Tony Spilaccio never liked to be alone with him because he liked to kill. He'd, he'd come in, see Tony, and say, Tony, got anybody today? Got anybody today? So he tells Newman to collect the money from Crandell, go see him. So we go, near, the sun is starting to set, and after sundown is when the holiday, Jewish holiday would begin. And so Crandell says, uh, you know, Larry, um, you know, it's almost Yom Kippur. I mean, can I talk with you like the next day after, this is a one day uh, holiday, you have to fast and all that. So then Crandell, uh, so Larry Newman looks at him, <laughs> I'll never forget this. He looks at him, pulls out his 30, his 32. Okay, he had a shoulder holster, but he had a 32 in the shoulder holster. And he points at Jack Crandell's head, who was Jewish. He said, uh, Jack, I'm only half Jewish. And Crandell ran in the house and got that money as fast as he could get it. So we're in the car. And I says, would you have hit him? He said, absolutely. He said, it wasn't Yom Kippur yet. It wasn't Yom Kippur. So he said, I could still whack him at that point. <laughs> It is funny because they have a mindset that people just don't understand. And, and unless you witness it firsthand, you can re never really comprehend just how no. It, it's no different to them to pour in a cup of coffee and, and pulling a trigger. It's no, like I said with Frank Calabrese, Frank Calabrese um, was the type of guy who's like the movie Sybil. He had like 14 different personalities. He could sit here with you, David very nice to you and say, Davis, this was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on your show. And say it was an in-studio uh, appearance, not a podcast. And he said, David, I'll be right back. I know you got a couple minutes. I got to, I just got to, I'll come right back. And you would think he's maybe going to the bathroom, right? He'd come back with a 38 and blow your brains out and then still tell you a dirty joke or something and smile at you. Okay. Yeah. So this is how, this is how it would be. You know, guys would turn on that quick you know, say things and do things that, that fast.
That's how it would be happening to them. Everything was normal. And that as a child, things became normal to me. Seeing my first murder, when I was 11 years old, I saw a guy's hands cut off. He was still alive. The same guy, when I was 12, used uh, an axe, a bigger axe, and he took a guy's head off. He decapitated him when I was 12. And sure, it was all scary. Like I tell people, I always have emotional scars, never go away. But after a while, seeing all the beatings I saw from juice collectors, street enforcers, yeah, yeah, you become, you become kind of numb. I'm cold about it. It becomes just normal, just a normal thing. Yeah, I, it's, that's probably the best place to stop. Um, I would definitely love to do some more again, if it's possible, um, because there's just yeah, so many. I would get into Marilyn Monroe with you. Well, we haven't even got into juice collecting yet. We haven't got into the no. rackets, the juice collecting, the celebrities, the Marilyn, you know. No, and you, they're, they're, they're and so you never had gotten into Marilyn Monroe yet, who I met. Yeah, that's yeah, a whole other This is what I mean. They're, 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 all of these things, it, it's, it, it's endless. You know, we haven't got into the JFK. We well, that's why hosts always want, more, want to spend more time. I had a host one time, David, I know you got to go. And he said to me, Mr. Hoffman, if I could cancel the next show, I would do it. And yeah. we just keep talking. We just keep, that's what hosts tell me. I wish I could just keep talking, keep talking, you know, and that's, I, I've been to restaurants one time, uh, you know, it was the restaurant was supposed to close at nine o'clock and I had like 70 people there in, in like a banquet room in the restaurant. And the owner comes in and he says, okay, if anyone wants to leave, I'm, you know, I'm because I'm going to just close the door and I'll put the close sign on. And I thought we were all through at nine o'clock. He says, because I'm going to ask Mr. Hoffman to keep on going. And he, so he says, is there anybody? Just raise your hand. Nobody raised their hand. Everybody stayed. He kept me talking there in the restaurant. It was closed. There was no more customers coming in. The cooks went home. I was there till about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. Okay. That's how long I was there. Just keep talking, he'd say. Just keep talking. Yeah. And that's what people tell me. Just keep talking. Keep talking. Well, so, yeah, it's a subject. Well, I, I would definitely like to be able to do this again if that's going to be a possibility. And there you have it, an inside story from Scott. Please check out the links in the bio. Thank you very much for listening. I am currently, as I'm recording this, editing, etc., seeing if I can arrange a second interview at some point, as I'd definitely love to have Scott on again, because it's just such a large depth field of questions, and you know, there's so many things going on. So hopefully that will happen. And lastly, and not least, as always, thank you for your support. And wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you believe, be blessed and take care of yourself.